good morning, Forge community. It's good to see you. Glad you're here. We're going to be in Acts, starting in Acts chapter 19 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, good morning to you all. Good morning to those who are joining us online. Um, if you happen to be a first-time guest, we're really glad that you're here. We'd love to get to know you. You can visit the Connections desk after the service. It's in the lobby. Um, so yeah, we're going to be starting in 19. We were there some last week. We'll be in it a little bit today, and then we'll end up in chapter 20 as well. Before we look at the text, there are, what I see, uh, two spiritual warnings. Whenever we find a, a spiritual warning, we need to pay attention to that, right? Whenever we see a warning about how we're living or how we're, how we're going about our life, when we see a warning from Scripture, it's something for us to, to sit up and listen to and to take in. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and tell you what the warnings are, and then we're going to read the passage together and, and see how those play out. Um, but I thought it would be good for us to do this, to hear the warnings ahead of time, so that you can examine your heart today and you can prepare your heart today. Uh, one, just because as, as Casey just prayed, we're in the presence of God. And then two, because we're sharing the sacrament of communion a little bit later in the service. So we have this opportunity to hear these warnings and prepare our heart, um, examine our heart and prepare our heart for that. So here are the two warnings we're going to look at today. The first one, I'll just go ahead and just, just knock you right in the gut already, is this uh, warning about the idolatry of greed and materialism. The warning to us to watch out for us setting up uh, the pursuit of, of money and more and the things we can get with the money and, and how we just are, the idolatry of that, how we put it up so high above God. It's, it's in direct opposition to the message of Christ. Placing material possessions, worldly pursuits uh, above the one true God. It's a, it's a spiritual battle that many of us, I would say all of us, are fighting and many of us are not aware of it. I would say all of us are fighting this. Many of us are not aware that the battle's even going on. So that's uh, the, the first warning that we're going to find. And then the second warning is this, is to check our intentionality in worship, to check our heart in worship. What is the intention of your heart right now? What's the intention of your heart right now in worship with other believers in the presence of God. What are you expecting from God? What are you bringing to God as your worship today, this moment? Is your heart focused on him? Does he have first place? What's our intentionality in worship? So those are the two warnings, and now I want us to look at the text, and we'll see these come alive. Beginning in verse 23 of Acts chapter 19, it says this, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, what is this time? If you were here last week or you listened to the message last week, you know that as Paul was telling people about Jesus, people were turning from their idolatrous ways and they were running to Jesus. And in the process, what we discovered, millions of dollars worth of idolatrous stuff, scrolls and things, were burned up 
Like they were like, they torched it. They're like, I'm done with it. And they were running to Christ. And so this is that time that, it, that verse 23 mentions. So because of that arose a great disturbance about the way, capital W, way. If you remember, that's that description of the early church, five times in Acts. That's how the church is described. It is the way. They're not called Baptists or Methodists or uh, Calvinists or Armenians or Wesleyans or whatever. It's just, we're the way. And I love that because it is the way. It's the only way. It's not a way or a possible way, one of many ways, but it's the way. Jesus said this in John chapter 14, I am the way the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. That's why they were called the way, because Jesus proclaimed he is the way. No other way. Now see, like many of us right now are going, yes, I agree with that. Yes, I believe that. Yes, I've made a public declaration that I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him. How is that playing out, though, in our lives, friends? How is this being revealed in the way we live, the, the, the way we are, are just going about our existence? Is this belief being shown? Because those two warnings are, are very prevalent in this. All right, so we didn't get very far, did we? Now, the, what Jesus said in John 14 about being the, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him, is an incredibly exclusive statement. So whenever they referred to Christians as the way, they were referring to these people who were like, there is, there's just one way, and, you, and this is the only way. You've got to come this way. This is the one. Now, in the known world at this time of this writing, up to this point in human history, there had been hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of made-up supposed little G gods that different uh, people groups would worship, right? And along with that would be millions of trinkets and doodads and statuettes and things like that that people would say, oh, that's the God I worship and that's what he represents. And, and it might be several things and they would have these in their homes and they would possess them. Now, at this particular time in Ephesus, the exclusivity of the statement, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me, that Jesus said and Paul preached, it was wildly offensive to the Ephesians. And here's why. In their society, in their culture of thousands of little g-gods, there was one in in Ephesus, and her name was Artemis or Diana. That's the Greek and the Roman um, names, but the same, the same uh, idol or worship or item that was worshipped, I guess. Her name was Artemis or Diana. She, she was worshipped as the god of fertility and blessing. And hundreds of thousands of little trinkets and doodads and statuettes to Artemis were crafted and sold and worshipped. This is what's going on in Ephesus right in this moment that we're reading about. This is why there was a great disturbance. This is why there was a disturbance going on. And so this statement, this movement, this declaration of Jesus being the only way starts a commotion that erupts and builds into a riot, a mob of people. And they're deeply offended in their beliefs. Is that why they were, that's why they gathered? Is it because they were, they were so concerned about Artemis being downplayed? Was it because the, their Artemis was being blasphemed? Actually, no, that's not where it started. 
The riot began because of the threat to the little G God, not of Artemis, but of the people's hearts, their pocketbook, their wallet. It was, a, it was a pocketbook problem. It was an economic dilemma because here's what verse 24 says. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in, excuse me, yeah, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. Okay, so he's a silversmith. He's making these trinkets and doodads and, and whatnot. Just like today, you know, you go on vacation somewhere, you travel somewhere of significance, and you buy a souvenir. Well, people would come to Ephesus and worship the, the goddess Artemis, and they would buy things. But it wasn't just like the souvenir, you know, like the sand dollar or the little thing of shells and sand or whatever. It was like, no, we're going to take this home. We're going to worship this at home. This is going to be ours. So this was a thriving business. It wasn't just a remembrance of I went and saw the shrine to Artemis, but it was, and we're going to worship her too. Thriving, thriving business. Um, he, verse 25, Demetrius, the silversmith, he called them together. Who did he call together? Remember verse 24, the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades. All right, so this was a business meeting. This wasn't a religious meeting. This wasn't a, a yay Artemis meeting. This was a business meeting. He called them together along with the workers in related trades, and he said, you know, my friends, we receive a good income from this business. Right, that's, the, that's the motive of, of Demetrius's heart here. Okay, just He's being honest. He's revealing his motive. The reason he is upset is because the, the gospel that Jesus is the only way is causing people to turn from these idols, to turn from Artemis. People who were transformed by the power of the message of Jesus Christ, what they just do? What just happened? They burned up millions of dollars worth of this, of these things that that are not real, that 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 have no real worth, but but they were given a worth. And they're like, oh no, this is worth millions of dollars, and they burned it up. They wanted nothing to do with it anymore. Just imagine, friends. I'm mean, just for a second. Would could we imagine what our particular community? Lowndes County, South Georgia, what it would look like if hundreds of thousands of Christ followers, people of the way, shifted from worshiping all different kinds of idols and invested in kingdom-focused endeavors. Just imagine, just like all those people are like, no more of this, I'm burning it up, I'm done. What if this shift happened? I mean, I'm talking like if every person who professed Jesus Christ in Lowndes County, just Lowndes County, made this shift, what would it look like? What would happen? Like, here's my guess, and this is just a short list. Schools would be overrun with people saying, can I come in and volunteer? Can I read to kids? Can I mentor kids? Can I, can I help tutor kids? Um, local agencies and ministries that are like boots on the ground with people every single day, people dealing with addiction and mental health issues, um, single parent families, um, hunger, like all of these different agencies would be overwhelmed with, we don't know what to do with all the assistance that we're receiving, all the investment that people are making to us. We don't know what to do with this because it's so much. I mean, can you imagine what would happen? What would it look like if we were to invest in our community because we turn from greed and materialism and we turn from those pursuits into to pursuing the way. 
That's a, that's a real valid question to ask. So what we find here in the text is that people are turning away from idols, they're turning to the Lord, which means that those who are making the idols and the trinkets and the doodads and all that stuff, they're losing profit. They're losing money. And that's Demetrius's point. He says in verse 26, he says, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul, so he's putting it on Paul, has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. But that was Demetrius's trade. And these other people he's gathered, this was their life. This is what they did. They made little gods with their hands. Verse 27, this is Demetrius speaking. He says, there is danger. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And if that's discredited, then their business is discredited, right? And then he says, so he has this in order. He talks about money first. He talks about profit first. He talks about the fear of not being able to have a, uh, make a living and then, or to have enough. And then he goes, and the goddess herself who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. His heart is, he's, he's not hiding this. He's like, look, we're losing money. Oh, and by the way, Artemis might get a bad name. He's not a devout Artemis follower. He's a devout, a devout um, cash flow follower. Wallets, bottom lines, overhead costs, surpluses. These are getting stepped on by Paul, who's sharing the gospel, because he points Paul out as he's the one. Now notice it doesn't say that, that Paul's picketing or protesting or doing anything like that. He's just talking about Jesus. Every opportunity he gets, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through Jesus. He's the way. He's just speaking the truth. And the, the, there were consequences that people that were saying yes to Jesus, the consequences are happening, which is why Demetrius is, is kind of worked up. He's the idol maker. And his wallet is being affected. And so he wants to gather people, stir them up, and get Paul out of town. We've got to get Paul out of Ephesus. He's, he's ruining our business. And what I love about this is even though it's, it's negative towards Paul, when you read it, what it does, it is, it's just affirming. It's another account from a non-believer affirming that God is working. It's affirming that God's working. Something's happening in Ephesus and it's not of our doing, because this is about Jesus, and we're not for Jesus. Now, so after Demetrius has shared this, and everyone's kind of going, oh, yeah, you're right. We're not, the business isn't that great. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were furious, and they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But if you look at what Demetrius just said, I think there's a translation of this. That is more accurate. Great is the profit that we make off of the worship of Artemis of the Ephesians. That's really what he's saying, because that's his motive. Verse 29, soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, because it wasn't just Paul. He had a group of people with him always, and they were going about doing ministry. They seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. 
don't have time to talk about the theater that was there in Ephesus, but it was designed to hold thousands and thousands of people, and it was designed acoustically. Um, and so if you can imagine all these people rushing into this public theater and chanting this, that how loud that must have been. And Paul, being ever the evangelist, we read in verse 30, he wants to go up here before this crowd. He's like, oh, thousands of people gathered? I'm going to go talk about Jesus because he's the way, the truth, and the life. But even his own people, his own friends are like, no, no, don't go. It says he wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province who were friends of Paul sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. It was going to be dangerous for Paul. People were upset. It's chaos. So it's getting a little hot for Paul and his friends spiritually in Ephesus. You got to remember where we've been as we walk through Acts. Paul was invited to Ephesus originally. He was invited not just to Ephesus, he was invited to the synagogue in Ephesus. Come and teach here, Paul. We want to hear from you. And for two months he did until people started to, some people started to not like what he was saying. Jesus is the only way. So he went and found a lecture hall of Tyrannus and he stayed there for two years teaching Jesus is the only way. And it made a huge impact. And then he would get run out. Run out of the synagogue, then run out of Tyrannus. This disrupted Ephesus. Verse 32. So there's this crowd here and they're in this theater. The assembly, the people that were there, was in confusion. This is so, this is real. You know like when you're in the cafeteria and you hear like, fight, fight, fight. And people start running. Like you don't know who's fighting or what's going on, but everyone goes. There's a commotion. You, you know, like things happen. Like a, some, something outside happens and you hear something loud or anything and people go running. It's like a, it's a mob mentality. This is what's happening here. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. So it's not even like a collective group. They all agreed. Like, this is why we're here, because Artemis is the best, and, and we don't want to hear about Jesus anymore. No, they were just mob mentality there, and some were yelling one thing and some another. Listen to the rest of verse 32. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Most of them didn't even know where they got together. I mean, this is like, this is mob mentality. It's like the chant. Like, what are we mad at? We don't know. <laughs> why are we doing this again? We don't know. Like, that was the chant that was happening. No one knew why. They were just there. And I think a lot of protests and marches and, and uh, you know, standing up and, and speaking up in these big gatherings that we see even today you know, it's like, hey, we're going to protest. Okay, cool. I don't have anything else to do. I'll come down. I'll make sure I, you know, get, a, get some video footage of this. I'll make sure I get a selfie here at this. And, and there's like no really like I'm into this. It's just like the mob mentality of being there. No depth of knowledge of what's going on. You know those, <laughs> do you ever have those cringe moments where you watch people do something or say something and it's like you don't want to watch it, but you watch it anyway and you're like, please don't. Like, it's just going to be horrible. You know what I'm talking about? Like, and one of the things I, I think about is like um, when someone will be at a, a protest or some kind of, you know, march or gathering or something and, and they'll get pulled aside and asked a question like, why are you here? Or what do you think about this policy that you're marching for or against or whatever? And then the person like has no idea what they're talking about. And you're like embarrassed for them, really. You're like, oh, come on. You know, and, and it's like, it, it's, it's one of those cringe moments. I have a cringe moment. Any Office fans? Scott's tots, it's like the worst. 
He promised so much to these kids when they were in elementary school and he didn't come through their senior year in high school. And oh, me and Drew and Mallory were like, oh golly, it's Scott's Tots episode. Oh no, you know. Um, Drew will be like, I'm not watching it, I can't, you know, and I'm like, I'm gonna do it, but it's a cringe moment, and this is kind of this cringe moment here. Many of the people did not even know why they were there, they were just there because mob mentality. I signed so many petitions in college, it's ridiculous. I put my name on some stuff that I had. I'm, I'm sure today, I w- if there's like a database, I want my name off of it. Now, was I was it because I was politically minded and wanted to change the world? No, it's because I was a, a wannabe hippie in the late 80s and early 90s, and I went to music festivals all the time, and they're like, here, sign this petition. Great, pass me a pen. You know, like that's, it's just what I did. And so like, you don't know why you're there. And this is, I, that is so important to note here. Because sometimes we think great movements that are, that are uh, against us, they're really not as powerful as they might seem. You know, when we as Christians talk about the world and, and the secular world, and we make these comments, and we talk about maybe groups of people or organizations that are against the message of Christ, friends, I think in many cases that is a, it's a, it's a shallow, it's a hollow um, power that we, we have made bigger than it is. We need to trust in the power of God. When we speak the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, don't let a mob mentality change your course. Don't stop talking. Be faithful to that. Okay, so, little sidetrack there. So this riot ensues in Ephesus, right? Chaos. Chaos stirred up a riot. They're chanting different things. They don't even know where they're there. And it put Paul on a hit list. I mean, it's like, we've got to get him out of town. Um, it would have affected, he, he does leave. Um, but it, he knows that the message of Christ is going to continue. There are people there who are speaking for Jesus. Now, let's turn over to chapter 20. Because in here, what we're going to find, very first verse of chapter 20, it says, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So he poured into the, the leaders, the people who believed in Jesus that were there in Ephesus, and just gave them a word, you know, the locker room speech, and then he left. He left because it was, it was better for the way if he moved on at this point. Now, the next couple of verses in verses 2 through 6 in chapter 20, it explain a pattern where Paul would go to a place, and at first he, w- he would teach and encourage, and then people would get mad. And then he'd go to another place and teach and encourage, and people would get mad. And this was kind of, kind of how it worked. This is how it went. So we're going to jump down to verse 7, and it's an incredibly strange moment in Scripture. If you happen to be uh, a young person who went, grew up going to Sunday school, um, there's a really good chance that a Sunday school teacher used this story we're about to look at as like a passive aggressive or maybe not so passive um, way to be like, you better listen up. So, or maybe you even heard it straight from the, from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. But here's this, this moment that's captured that's, that's quite odd, but it makes sense. <laughs> so, Verse 7, Luke writes, remember Luke is the author of Acts. He was traveling with Paul. It says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. That's what the believers did. They shared the sacrament of communion. They broke bread together. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, Paul had his heart set on Jerusalem, okay? 
So now he's traveling to these places where he's been, where there's a movement of Christians, and he's encouraging them, and then he's going to be moving on. So he knew he was going to be here for a short amount of time. And, he, and it says, because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. I don't know what time he started. I'm not thinking he started at 11 p.m. I'm thinking this is a good four, five, maybe six hours that, that Paul is talking. That's a long time, y'all. <laughs> midnight, midnight. And there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. And seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. <laughs> right? Can you just see like some Sunday school teachers or preachers like getting, getting into this message right there? So we've all dozed off in a sermon before. Someone's probably doing it right now. Um, but Jesus Louise, wouldn't you hate to be the one whose name gets put in Scripture for all time for falling asleep during a message? Oh, poor Eutychus, dude. Oh. And it says, when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him, and said, don't be alarmed, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread, because that's why they, that's what they were going to do. And then, it doesn't say, he said, that's probably a good cue to me that I should stop. No, after talking until daylight, <laughs> he left. And the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Now, broadly speaking, there are two camps, two trains of thought on this little passage here. There's the blame Paul argument. Like, Paul, you were preaching too dang long. That's just a long, long time to be talking. He had a lot to impart to people before he left, but he, I mean, come on, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve hours? Like, we don't know. He went on to midnight, then he went on till daybreak. Right? There's the blame Paul argument. And so when Eutychus nods off, you kind of go, I get it, falls out of the window and dies. Some are like, okay, let's not throw this in the miracle category. He could have just been concussed, you know, bumped his head, you know, whatever. But let's remember the author, Luke. What is his profession? He's a doctor. If Luke wanted to record that Eutychus fell out a window and had a boo-boo on his noggin, that's what he would have written. But Luke, the doctor, said, and he was dead. That's really important to note. He died. Eutychus was dead. He died because Paul couldn't wrap it up. <laughs> I mean, that's really... And, and even after that traumatic turned miraculous event, Paul still didn't wrap it up. He keeps talking until dawn. So there's that, that side of the story is, come on, Paul. But then there's the other side, and it's the, um, Eutychus, you have a part to play in this. Let's blame Eutychus a little bit here. Because what this does is, I, as I read it, and actually people who are much sm smarter than me, biblical scholars read it, is this ties into the overarching motif, theme of the New Testament, which is stay awake, be alert, look around. God's at work, the enemy's at work. You got to know the difference, follow after Jesus. I mean, that's just, it's stay awake. Don't be lulled into, into sleep spiritually. Don't be, don't be drawn into to just, what are we talking about, the warnings today of greed and materialism and all this. Like, no, be attentive, be attentive, stay awake. I mean, you see it when Jesus is like to his own disciples, you can't even stay up with me for a little while. 
in, in the Garden of Gethsemane? Stay awake. So you've got the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to tell you, I hadn't thought about this much, but now I will, I will always think of it this way. The, from now, here, here forth, when I talk about or say the phrase, lean in, I'm going to think about Eutychus. <laughs> lean in. Lean in. We need to lean in, friends. We really do. And I'm not talking, I'm, expect, I'm saying you need to lean in and pay attention to me. I'm saying we need to lean in to what God wants to show us, reveal to us, teach us, work in us, what he wants to refine in us, how he wants to fill us, how he wants to equip us. We got to lean in. If we're not leaning in, we're leaning out. And if we're leaning out, we might fall off a three-story building and there's the problem. We got to lean in. Let's lean in. Now, I do think there's a middle ground to this argument. Blame Paul, blame Eutychus. I think there's a middle ground. Yes, Eutychus was inattentive and fell asleep, but teachers don't need to place a burden of a six-hour sermon on anybody. Um, but I also think it's worth, it's worth it for us to ask ourselves, what do I stay awake for? Because I stay awake for a lot of things. I stay awake for a lot of things. What do you stay awake for? What do you attend to? What do you feel like is so important in your life you'll lose sleep for, and yet then there's other things you're like, well, this is a good chance to get a 15-minute nap. We stay awake for movies. We stay awake for football games. We stay awake for gaming. We stay awake for binge-watching shows. Lots of things, but we doze off in a 25-minute message. Now, I will do my part to not burden you. <laughs> I'm not going to do a six-hour message. Um, but I will be, uh, but I challenge you as well to be wary that if you prop yourself up in a window ledge on a third story, lean in, friends. Lean in. Lean in. So we're celebrating communion today, right? And we saw that that was why they gathered. Paul was coming to impart some words, teaching, and wisdom they came together to break bread. And so as we kind of shift here for a moment, and we really were just staying in the same line here, you hear me say this a lot, to examine our hearts. To examine our hearts, prepare our hearts. What does that look like? Well, let me repeat those two spiritual warnings that I said at the outset. Okay? And see now after we've looked at Scripture, God's Word, testimony of what God is doing, how he's working through his people. Hear these two spiritual warnings again. The first one is this, is we've got to watch out for the idolatry of greed and materialism. That was the motive of Demetrius and all those tradesmen. The devotion to greed is in direct opposition to the message of Christ. Placing material possessions and pursuits above the one true God, the only way. It is that spiritual battle that all of us are fighting and many of us aren't aware that we're fighting. And if you're not aware that you're in a battle, you're losing. If you're not aware that you're in a battle right now, then you are being defeated. And that's not who we were called to be. We were not called to be people who walk in defeat. We're called to be people who walk in victory, victory of Christ Jesus. Let's wake up to that, okay? And then the other warning is this. 
the intentionality that we have that we bring in worship. And yes, that means corporately, but also in just the attitude of our hearts and minds at all times. When we're alone in the car or with other people, when we're sitting across the table with someone, what is our intentionality to worship God? Because the story of Eutychus reminds us to not take lightly the opportunity for us to be together with other believers and to hear God's word and to sing his praises, to give him his rightful place. Eutychus's experience urges us to approach times of worship and teaching and lean in instead of lean out, to lean in, to have a heart that's prepared to receive and respond to God's word. The idolatry of greed and materialism, we see it here in this text. What is our intentionality when we gather to worship and hear the word of the Lord? Those are two heart checks today. I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come out. I'm going to ask those who are serving if you will come and, and prepare to serve us in a moment. And as they do that, I'm going to pray. Now, if there's a time during this prayer where it's quiet, I'm just telling you now, that's a prompt for you to take a moment in prayer, okay? So, but let's let's pray. Let's Turn our attention now to the Lord. God, the question of the intentionality of our heart in this moment, it, it's not a question that you are waiting for us to answer so that you can then do something. You are, fully, you are fully aware of the intentions of our heart in this moment. You call us to examine our heart and prepare our heart so that we would be focused on you. You don't need information from us. You don't need a checkup from us. You already know. So let's take that, that out of the equation. What's most important right now is for us to be able to, to name, to recognize the intentionality of our heart as we are gathered here as your people who profess you to be the God of the universe, who desires to be in relationship with us through Jesus Christ. Let's recognize that right now. Lord, in our confession is that we have failed to recognize that. Our confession, God, is that we have forgotten that. Our confession, Lord, is that we have, we believe that, but it is lower down on the rung of things that are important in our lives. And God, in this moment, we would lift you up to the highest place, the highest place, the absolute highest place. There is no other. There is no other, there is no statue or trinket or doodad that has any sort of power in our lives. You are first, your highest. We call you Lord. We profess Jesus to be Lord. Would we all in this moment mean that? 
Jesus is Lord. Forgive us for anything else that is, we've allowed to hold lordship in our lives. We confess our sins before you now. Here's the good news. When you profess that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to him, can come to God except through him, the good news is that your sins are forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. So, Father, in this time, we celebrate the sacrament, the significance of your life, your death, your resurrection, that you work in our hearts and in our minds. We would rise as resurrected people to share in this sacrament, to take part in what you've given to us, that we would be people of the way. You would be first. We would come to you now intentionally seeking a closer relationship with you. Intentionally come to worship you, to worship you, to share in the sacrament, to praise you, to sing out songs of hymns and praise, to be on our knees in prayer, to sit silently and just be overwhelmed by your presence. But intentionally, we want to worship you.